Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. It's part one of episode 23, and in it, Grand McMillan schools me in all the latest and greatest products of 21st century culture. Nicolas Cage movies, Brad Meltzer's Decoded, and Jeff Parker and Gabriel Hardman's Hulk. From there on, we talk Steel, Final Crisis, a discussion of Grant Morrison's Invisibles, Garth Ennis's The Boys, and Preacher. And we finally end up wondering where the current crop of personal, multi-layered series may be these days. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Jeff Lester. Jeff. Jeff Lester. Jeff. Jeff Lester. This is Jeff Lester. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I must have the wrong number. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you called. I will tell you who you are. <laughs> <laughs> That could be a very valuable Skype service, actually. Wouldn't that be great? Like, for all, every time someone is like, I've got amnesia, I don't know who I am, they could just tell us number and I'd be like, your name is Bill O'Reilly. You talk on Fox Network, and chances are you've lost a incredibly highly paid the gig because you'll no longer remember your crazy right-wing invective. <laughs> Dude, keep going. This is gold. <laughs> on you go! <laughs> Seriously, this is the next big um, screenplay of our times. Uh, exactly. Let's have... Who's the woman who's always in these films? Um, I can't remember her name. She's in Big Love as well. She was in Veronica Mars. Big Love and Veronica Mars? Damn it, why do you have to pick like the two shows I've never seen, which I've more or less admitted <laughs> to you previously? Not, I thought for some reason you'd since seen Veronica Mars. No, no, I've seen Party uh, Down, which is... Uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> I'm not sure we can go on with this podcast. I think one is quite done. How did Jeff Laurie, you, sir? Uh, uh, I am okay, I think. <laughs> wow, I ask really excitedly, and you're like, I, I could be worse. I don't <laughs> Uh, well, let's hear about you, because you sound excited and up, so... Uh, I'm just excited and up because uh, I'm, like, plowing through work, basically. It's it's a false excitement and up, Jeff. It's a, thank God I'm getting this stuff out of the way. Although I do have a story going up on spin-off later on today that um, I'm very excited for the internet to meet. Ooh. Do you want to do, do? I mean, the great thing is it's not really like you can spoil oh, so, it anyone but me. So what, bit, what it is, is... Um, I'm now doing commentary for, for spin-off. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm doing more of the, the op-ed pieces. Okay. Uh, and I was looking around to see, you know, I wonder what's happening this weekend that I could write about. And I realized that Nick Cage has Season of the Witch coming out. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking, Nick Cage makes an incredible amount of completely generic, shitty movies. <laughs> why does he do this? So my post is, why does Nick Cage do this? And I come up with four theories. One, he really needs the money. Right. Two, when he agrees to do them, they're all great, and they just turn terrible in the middle of the of production, and he can't get out of it. Right. Three, he has a really bad taste, mm. and so thinks all of them are good. And four, and this is the one that I think I'm most excited for the internet to read, Nick Cage has transcended taste as a concept. He has realized taste being subjective is essentially meaningless Mm -hmm. and therefore just agrees to do everything. It's, it's not a bad theory. It's not a bad theory. I mean, I, I, um, I, I, first off, let me say that it's awesome that you're writing more op-ed pieces because that is, um, they are always a delight. Uh, I, I think that there's something, um, to all those points, I, weren't you the one who told me that he's got some massive, massive tax debt to pay off and therefore is doing... Yeah, well, he, he sold all his comic collection. His comic collection was amazing. I mean, he had, like, Action Comics 1. That uh, killed me. I thought like, he sold that off way back before when he... No, he, he sold, sold it off in, like, September, apparently. I thought he. I thought the rumor was he sold so, it off when he got I, with Lisa. He got married Marie to Lisa Marie Presley. Yeah, right. I, that's what I thought as well. But apparently not. Or he had multiple copies because he was definitely selling it again or selling it uh, for oh, the first Jesus. time in September. Um, also, like the first appearance of Green Lantern, he had that. He had um, Fantastic Four number one, Avengers number one, like mm. Brave Bull thirty three, like all of that. 
Jesus. Like all of the big ones. Um, and that was only half of his collection. Oh my God, really? Yeah. Um, so yeah, quite clearly, like he does need the money. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I just, I just, I came up. It's one of those things where I was like, "Season of the Witch. What the hell is this? Is this like Sorcerer's Apprentice?" Because that like came and went incredibly quickly. Because no yes. one. Yes. And I realized, and then I was like, "He makes an awful lot of these films. Maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe like taste means nothing to him. Like mm-hmm. quality of movies is." is utterly meaningless for him and as soon as i came up with that thought i was like i have to write this do you totally should <laughs> I, I have to write this. so um so yesterday during uh while i was waiting for kate to finish her massage before i had my first massage ever uh i wrote the the um this and i actually tweeted about it. it's the first time ever i've been so like amused by something i've written myself i tweeted something like hey can't wait until tomorrow afternoon where you all see this so we we shall see it'll probably get horrifically ignored you never know uh, you never know, as it sometimes is the case when you've got the the beloved theory that you can't wait to show the world. Oh, yeah, exactly. And... You're like, I can't wait till everyone reads this, and no one reads. Or they're like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> I'm like, what? No, it's hilarious. Come on. Come on, think about it a little bit. Exactly. Well... Yeah, you, you obviously didn't read it right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I. I sort of wonder, Nicolas Cage is a, a little bit of that, um, uh, you know, there, there is the, I, I, I was worried you were going to come up with a theory that, that Nicolas Cage has had his taste destroyed by reading comics, and that's why, like, he's the most prominent comic book fan that we have out there in the world, and kind of look at what he's been reduced to, you know what I mean? Well, like, that I first of all, I will never say that and spin it up online. <laughs> Way to completely piss off your target audience. Um, but I'm kind, like, I'm kind of pointing towards that when I'm saying that, like, he maybe he just has bad taste, right? Like, because I, I think it's very possible that he just likes these films. I mean, if you look, there is sort of sort of a through line mm-hmm. to the shit he does. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? There's generally big budget, kind of fantasy, fancy ish. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate came up with the, the, I think, very possible theory that he's doing lots of terrible films because he's looking for his Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. Like, he's looking for the successful franchise that he can do, like, one of every couple of years and then either not work or do much smaller films. And it's just right. that all of the ones he's chosen have been bad. Right. Yeah, no, I, I it certainly makes sense for me for both... Um... Ghost Rider and Sorcerer's Apprentice, I think, you know, both kind of had franchise potential. And and especially uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice, I think. They, they... Well, I mean, Ghost Rider is getting a sequel, so... Yes, it is, but, like, only in the, you know, most profoundly bargain basementist kind yeah, of Yeah, it is. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, which is which is kind of a shame. I, uh, I don't know, you know... It, it, it's it's also fascinating to me in that the number of things that he's, tr- you know, tried his hand at redoing or remaking. I mean, clearly there there was some. I don't know. Wasn't there some press conference or something where people were asking him about uh, essentially like why the hell he did the remake of the Wicker Man and why the hell was it so goddamn like crazy and terrible? And he just kind of talked about like. Oh, they kind of asked if they if he'd seen all the online mashups of of his Wicker Man performances, and he was just like, eh, you know, if people, I, I like the idea that people maybe see that there's something more going on to the performance that makes it enjoyable for them, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I he just he fascinates me. He fascinates me, I think, in part because. I think other actors have a period where, like, they're great and then they do shitty movies. Do you know what I mean? Or or they never get to do good movies in the first place. But Nick Cage literally goes between, like, good movie, seven shitty movies. Good mm-hmm. movie, seven shitty movies. And it's like, he's it's not like he's slowly sunk into obscurity. Like, he sort of dives into it in between. Well, but the thing that's amazing is, is I don't think you also... There's no way of telling when that shitty movie is going to like suddenly hit it big like that national treasure you know national treasure trailer like seeing that in the theater the audience was laughing it seemed like a really bad spoof of those types of movies no but at the same time like i i, I say this in the face national treasure i quite believe was pitched to him and it sounded awesome 
it's Indiana Jones with better special effects and it's all about American history. Like, if if I was an actor, I'd be like, that sounds fun and, like, it's going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think that could be one where he's like, okay, this will be good. And then it turns out not to be, although I have to admit, not only do I like National Treasure, I have also seen the sequel, which, <laughs> it has to be said, is like National Treasure. Like, it's, it's one of those things where, like, it's not even a sequel as much, it's pretty much the same film. Uh, although, oh, God, that reminds me. Um, have you seen Brad Meltzer's TV show, Decoded? No. Oh my god, it's my new favorite thing. It's it it's so great. I I mean I I I caught a rerun in your state and I swear to god I was hooked. <laughs> Dakota is um it's meant to be like Brad Meltzer sends a team out to find the truth about these urban myths uh, about American history, right? So like did John Wilkes Booth survive the barn burning following Lincoln's assassination? Right. Okay. Which you know, I'm already going to watch that show anyway. I'm interested in that, okay? Right. The execution, however, elevates it to this wonderful level that has to be seen to be believed. First of all, Brad Meltzer only appears with a CGI background behind him uh, commenting on what's actually happening as his team investigates. Or he appears on the phone as the team drive, like giving them clues like Charlie from Charlie's Angels, Okay. Oh my god, you have got to be shitting me. This is like... No, 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 I swear to god, this is real. I'm, I'm not done. By the time I'm finished, you're going to want to, like, you're going to run out to buy a television and a cable just to see the show. <laughs> totally. Um, okay, so that happens. His three, um, his team member, his team are the former Attorney General of Maryland, I think. <laughs> he's definitely the former Attorney General of somewhere. Um, a professor, they don't tell you what he's a professor of. He's just like, professor... Uh, and an architect, okay? An architect? The, three of, the three of them are, like, the most melodramatic interviews ever. So, like, they're talking to this person, this person's like, I think I have proof that John Wilkes survives. Would you like to see the proof? And it'll cut to, like, the Attorney General, and he will look as if someone has been like, you have cancer in one day to live. And then he's like, dun, dun, dun. And, like, and then he's like I'd love to see it. Yes. <laughs> so they're doing all this. But the best part is Brad Meltzer's commentary is the greatest thing ever. It makes me think that Brad Meltzer is the coolest guy in the world. Because he comments on it, not in the sense of, you know, as you can tell, now they're going to do this. He, like, breaks in and he's like, okay, I know this sounds ridiculous. But, you know, if you think about it, maybe it's true. But let's face it, it's probably ridiculous. And then they go back to the show. And he's saying this, like... Against a background of like, because you know it's decoded, of like flying random text, and occasionally like a picture will fade in behind them and they fade out. It's like that Meltzer said, like this weird holodeck program. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I, I honestly like I I flew with each other, so I was like, oh, this is Brad Meltzer show, and I'd seen. I want to say Sterling Gates. I'd seen someone talk about it on Twitter and be like, this is a good show, and I was like, you know, why not? And I really, within like 10 minutes, I was completely hooked. And I'm like, I'm adding this to my season pass on TiVo. Like, the whole thing. I'm, I can't miss another episode of this. It's just, it's so great. And, and so the following one after the John Wilkes Booth one was um, missing Confederate gold buried in throughout the United States um, that's being protected by a secret society that's still in existence. I, I mean, it's you can't make this shit up. And, and it's like all through the thing, like they have this guy. He's like, I've I've worked out the codes, and like he tries to explain the codes, and the code is complete gobbledygook. Like if he has worked it out, it's because he's a complete and utter fucking nutcase. He's like, as you can see, there's an H on this tree that could mean heart or heaven or both. So I'm going to work the pergola, and you're like, where's the connection? <laughs> And then he's like, on oh, the pergola, the pergola has eight sides. So that means it's a straight line down to the train track. We can't get into the train track, but I guarantee there's gold under there. <laughs> and like, even the three people are like, I think he's nuts. And then it comes to Brad Meltzer and he's like, this guy could be crazy. I mean, it definitely sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. But think about it. He's found gold. Maybe he's crazy. Or maybe he isn't. And like, they're <laughs> around behind him. It's, oh God, it's so good. Dude, this sounds amazing. I can't believe more people are talking about it. Show ever. 
it's it's just I literally like Brad Meltzer, like comes on. I Brad Meltzer looks like like me. Do you know what I mean? Like he's this bald guy, just wearing <laughs> casual clothes with glasses, and he would just come on and they'll be like, "Yeah, here's this week's mystery. It sounds nuts. Is it true?" So <laughs> good. <laughs> <It's so> good. <laughs> everyone listening to this who has the, I think it's the History Channel. Everyone listening to this has History and hasn't seen the show. You've got, you owe it to yourself to watch this. It's one of those things that's both, like, legitimately entertaining and just terrible in a wonderful way. <laughs> um, it's, it's great. It's really, really, really good. And all, also all sounds I, like something that Nicolas Cage would end up on. Oh, God, yeah, Nicolas Cage stuff. I can't expect him to pop up and be like, Brad, I've read your novels. Oh, the great part is, so the opening titles are spectacular. Um, <laughs> Because it's Brad Meltzer being like, America's filled with secrets and history. I've written about them in some of my novels. And while he's saying all this, like, it's all, like, CGI of, like, you know, here's the, the White House being grown and everything. And, like, while he goes, I've written about them in some of my novels. Like, CGI version of his novels fall from the top of the screen. No. Yes. <laughs> it's, oh, it's, it's so great. It's such a great show. How the f- Fuck, this is amazing. Like, seriously, can you believe like Oh, it's so good. I, I honestly I'm not making this shit up. It's 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 what it, like did, did you ever see Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? No. Uh oh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is this British um parody of like nineteen seventies dramas. Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, a horror writer would come on and be like, Here is my story and then it'd be like a terrible like twenty minutes and then he'd come back and be like, Isn't that scary? Um <laughs> It's it's like that, but Dakota is like that, but real. <laughs> well, there's also just that level of like I don't think that I you know. No, I mean all all love to Brad Meltzer, but I didn't think he was that level of writer. Do you know what I mean? I didn't think he was the level because it's called Brad Meltzer's Dakota. It's not right. called Dakota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that just uh, uh, astonishes me is is that it's Brad Meltzer's Dakota, and then being in the room and trying to pitch your show and be like, and then I will pop up and CGI copies of my books will fall from the sky, you know, or even alternately, you're like talking about this show and someone's like, Brad, 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 let me tell you, this show sounds great, but is it possible that you could like, you know, like actually call these people on the phone and give them hints or like... I mean, yeah, he calls them on the phone in the car. That's just it. He didn't just call them on the phone. <laughs> They're always in the car. And he goes on speakerphone. And he, I like, each episode starts with them in the car and him being like, hi, team. This week, you know, whatever. This week, I've heard a rumor that, you know, uh, Link was actually a woman. And there's a guy in Washington, D.C. who might be able to shed some light in this mystery. Are you interested? And they're like, yes! Wait, so where were they going beforehand? <laughs> to the store. Okay, <laughs> just like oh yeah, we were on our way to get to Cinnabon, and we just figured, yeah, it's like all right, a magic calling with a new mystery. That's fortunate, and it's so great. <laughs> Seriously, Jeff, you have to see the show. It's it's beautiful. Well, I, it does. That, that, honestly, I found by mistake on 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 New Year's Day and kind of made 2011 for me by itself. <laughs> And then, because I then found another show, which is actually legitimately great, called Oddities, um, which is about this weird-ass antique store mm-hmm. that sells, like, just weird shit. Like, this guy comes in, he's got a conjoined calf head. <laughs> and this guy's like... And then it comes to, like, the owner of the store, and he's like, I've wanted one of these babies for years. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 like, I, that's just, you know... One of the shows that makes you love humanity, because these people are, again, completely nuts. And you, you kind of want to hang out with them, and kind of never want to meet them ever again, you know? <laughs> wow. Um... Yes, I, I've, I've been watching some awesome, awesome, awesome television lately. Yeah, dude, how do you find the time, too? Is this something that you watch while you're writing and dictating no, the, something the, else? This, this was New Year's Day. This, oh, this, okay. uh, New Year's Day, Kate and I were both not, like, you know, hungover or anything, but just kind of, you know how sometimes you're just like, you know, all, all I really want to do today is eat and sit down. 
<laughs> that that was that was kind of our New Year's Day. Well, what, where what kind of uh, New Year's Eve shenanigans did you get into? We we get into no shenanigans whatsoever. We um, we went to Steve Labor and Sarah Ryan's annual party, which was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Oh, and during that party, uh, Jeff Parker and I were discussing the podcast. Ah. Uh, he's he's a listener, so hi, Jeff. Yes. Um, and uh, he made the incredibly good point of he'd listen, just listened to part one of the year end. Mm-hmm. And it was like I thought at some point you guys were going to talk about like actual comics, and you don't. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty much the way we do podcasts. We start <laughs> off aiming to talk about something and never quite get there. We talked about actual comics in part two. That's in part two, of, yeah, yeah, that's sort no, of no, but I, but I did think it was. I thought that was incredibly spot on. If you're looking to describe our podcast, we start off meaning to talk about something and never quite get there. It's true. It is true. It's it's a, it's a windy path to the castle uh, peak. Um, well, good. I'm glad that uh, he listens. That's actually pretty great. Hopefully, he said some nice things apart from utter bafflement about the show. No, <laughs> like, no, he 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 was very complimentary. Ah, lovely, lovely. Well, that's very nice. And in turn, uh, I'm going to be very complimentary about Jeff Parker. Have you read his Hulk? I have not. Oh, Jeff, you've got to read his Hulk. Yes. I I I had actually stayed away from it because, uh, as you know, I read the, a lot of the Jeff Lowbron. Mm-hmm. Um and I realized like I didn't like Red Hulk as a character, like mm-hmm. at all. I wasn't really that interested in it. But then, you know, I was talking to Jeff that night, and I was like, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious what he did because I liked that. You know, I like Atlas. I like a lot of things he's done, and mm-hmm. it's, it's Gabriel Hardman's drawing. I was like, you know, I'll, I'll pick up some back issues. Um, and Excalibur had their sales. So I was like, you know, if I can get issues for 150 or whatever instead of whatever price it normally is, right. you know, there's absolutely not, no reason not to do this apart from just being an asshole. And it's absolutely great. Yeah. It's it's really, really good. Um, in part because a running gag is that everyone that Red Hulk pissed off during Jeff Loeb's run right. gets their own back. <laughs> like, seriously. Thor pretends to miss your Captain America and so fights him. And then it's like, I didn't miss him at all. Um, the Watcher shows up and pretty much like lets the Hulk get eaten by a, a black hole. <laughs> like all these, like, it's this wonderful, like, and it works as a straightforward story as well. Right. But there's this other level of just, I don't think he's making fun of the Jeff Loeb run, but definitely like it's payback for the Jeff Loeb run on behalf of all of these characters. <laughs> Hmm. And it, uh, it's also, I mean, did you read Atlas when Gabriel Hartman was drawing it? No. Uh, the art is just spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine Michael Lark, but Michael Lark much better at drawing action. Mm. Um, and you've pretty much got Gabriel Hartman. Really, wow. really, really good stuff. Um, so yeah, I really highly recommend uh, Parker and Hartman's Hulk run. It's really, really, really good. And if you didn't like the Jeff Loeb run or, like me, started liking it and then pretty much got bored halfway through, um, go. It's it's just it's just fun. Hmm. It's really well done fun comics. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, <clears throat> do you want to tell me a little bit about sort of the status quo of the book in a way? or um... uh, So the status quo of the book is it's post Fall of the Hulks or whatever all that was called. Mm-hmm. The Red Hulk is still around. Mm-hmm. I should I spoil? Do you know who the Red Hulk is? Do you know I, this? this I squad? do. I like peeked into it enough to to. I don't know if you want to spoil it for all of our delight. Yeah, that, uh, well, the Red Hulk is still who the Red Hulk was. Um, yes. but he has basically been drafted by Steve Rogers to mm-hmm. help out because following Fall of the Hulks, World War Hulks, whatever it was called, mm-hmm. um. The intelligentsia, who are all the like super smart supervillains, mm-hmm. who have been defeated, and all of them have been reduced to their intelligence before they got their super intelligence. Mm. So like Sam Stearns isn't leader anymore; he's just like a janitor, mm-hmm. like all of that stuff. Um, but they have left all these failsafes in motion to destroy the world. Uh... Uh, that Bruce Banner is slowly figuring out, and as he figures that out, uh, Steve Rogers sends the Red Hulk to disable them. Mm-hmm. And as he does this, he comes into contact with all these other 
Marvel characters uh, right. who either who generally have to help him or he comes into conflict with them um, because, for example, you know, one of them is underwater, so he meets Namor. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is space, and so Thor has to help out. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just really well done. Mm-hmm. The the Red Hulk is it's becoming. I mean, it, I mean, I don't know if he's becoming or just Parker's a better writer than Loeb, and therefore it's more obvious. But he's an interesting character. He's a character who has his own sense of honor. So even though he completely hates what's going on mm-hmm. he's like i'm a soldier and my superior officer is giving me a command so i i'll just do it right. <laughs> like I, I would even complain because it's not my place to complain i'm a prisoner and i'm a soldier i will just do what i'm told hmm. that's uh, kind of a nice take on it in a way and in and in the background you've got steve rogers pretty much saying you know you're doing good work and at the end of this we might still be able to work with you, which I think might be a, a throw into the Red Hulk joining the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, there's an interesting dynamic between Steve Rogers and the Red Hulk. Right. Um, there's a, a, a sort of separatist. There's actually also now a, a backup of Rick Jones, who is now the this blue abomination character called A-Bomb. Uh-huh. Um, and he's like, that's just hilarious because he just loves being this hulk <laughs> so he's just going around and he's like i'm gonna hit things because i'm a hulk this is awesome <laughs> and, and he uh he ends up fighting monsters from monster island hmm. and he's like this is great i can just punch them <laughs> huh that sounds very fun no it is it's, it's a really really fun book uh, yeah, I, I genuinely recommend it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, I have got to get into the store. I still have stuff from like I don't know, like I think, gosh, probably right before Christmas Eve. So I've got a huge pile of stuff like sitting there. I'm sure that I've got to go pick up. So you mean you've not read Steel Issue One, the shocking first chapter of Reign of Doomsday? I have not. Yeah, although I sort of generally followed the gist of the the stories and the the I think it was it CBR that had an interview with the uh, the writer who was Newsarama. like Newsarama. Oh, was it Newsarama? Where which was, was like, which was a stunning interview, wasn't it? I yeah. wrote the story and then DC said, "Oh fuck it, we're doing a crossover. Just write this story instead." And so I wrote that I wrote that story. And the crazy thing is, because I read it last night, so I was reviewing it for Techland today. Mm-hmm. You've never or rarely seen something as phoned in and cliched as his writing in this. Really, ouch! Yeah. I mean, it's just—it's filled with cliches. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, everyone online who's complaining about Steel being dead—have you never read a comic before in your life? <laughs> Here's the thing: he doesn't actually die. Uh-huh. Like, no one comes on and says he's dead. Right. So, yeah. I mean, there's an there's an equally equally strong, if not stronger, basis to say he's been knocked unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because Doomsday then takes his body away. Well, see, that's it. Once you see the body being carried off, which I haven't seen, but, you know, they describe, it's like, when we see him, he's being carried off, and it looks like, and I'm like, uh, looks like? That's just not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. He's not, and I said this in Techland, but if DC have killed Steel, first of all, they've done it in a really bad way, because it's actually, it's genuinely not clear that he's dead. Uh, And secondly, they're incredibly stupid. Because I think what they're going for is to basically fake out the fans and go, it's like Ryan Joy, but not, he's not dead. Because right. the alternative is they have learned nothing from the Ryan Joy thing last year. Right. Do you know what I mean? And that strikes me as, that's not even ignorant. That's like stubborn. Right. <laughs> you know, that's stubbornly stupid. Uh, and I just, I just don't think that's, I, I just don't think it's possible. I, I refuse to believe the DC are that stupid. Right. Yeah, no, I just don't think so either. <clears throat> if nothing else, because like you said, there's sort of a, um, I don't know, you know, if nothing else, they wouldn't they wouldn't underplay it in such a way and then have it be like the last take on the character, sort of, you know. Yeah, I'm like, like if, if, if nothing else, they, you know, I would be very surprised the story would not be called something like death of a hero. Right. Right. Exactly. Or they would say that he's dead or it's one of those things where, uh, you know, 
he comes back in the the you know finale you know and manages to defeat doomsday and die but then he's dead it's like you know what i mean like it's kind of like there's there's obviously some other there's some sort of fake out that's going on it's yeah because, just... because really i don't think i don't think in general superheroes die failing if that makes sense superheroes right. die in a grand sacrifice uh with the exception for Ryan joy but um <laughs> no do you know what i mean like generally superheroes don't die because they've just died do you know what right. i mean no, uh, totally. I mean the, the only thing I can think of besides Ryan Joy is Martian Manhunter at the beginning of Final Crisis, and you can tell pretty much from like two pages later that Grant Morrison is like, "We pray for a speedy resurrection." Do you know what I mean? Like Grant Morrison, it winks at the audience and it's like, "He's not going to stay dead." Right. Yeah. Um, and also like, there's a whole thematic Grant Morrison, uh, Martian Manhunter thing going on there as well. Mm-hmm. Like Martian Manhunter had to die at that point because of who Martian Manhunter is to Grant Morrison, but. Well, do you remember that his Justice League? Mm-hmm. Martian Manhunter leaves the Justice League in Grant Morrison's Justice League. Mm-hmm. Okay, for a few issues. Mm-hmm. Between him leaving and him coming back, everything goes to shit. Mm-hmm. Martian Manhunter comes back and says something like, "I'm ready to resume active duty," and it's at that point that everything turns good again and everything turns in the hero's favor again. Right. Morrison clearly, clearly sees Martian Manhunter as an avatar for the DC universe, a DC universe where the superheroes win. So for right. Final Crisis to happen, i.e., evil wins, he right. has to die. He can't be on. He can't be there. Right. Well, it's it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, weirdly enough, that that Final Crisis, that so much of it happens without. Um, <clears throat> without Superman, for example, you know, which is is kind of another thing of like the the character has to be removed from the board. well, exactly. And then again, when Superman comes back, mm-hmm. like Superman comes back at the end of issue six, mm-hmm. and then issue seven is, and this is how we save the world. Right. Exactly. So it's it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that way that there's sort of a the way that he removes those characters from the board. I think what's what I think is a great point, you know, that you've made is is how much Martian Manhunter is actually one of those characters for Morrison because he's it's it's actually pretty stealthy, I guess, in that sense, um, you know. And of course, there's all the other stuff coming back with bringing the Flash back, and you know, I, I think there's kind of a, um, I don't know, I, I, you know, there there's obviously clearly a need for him to remove certain. Hallmarks from the board, I guess. I just didn't realize that Martian Manhunter is as strong. Um, I, I, I think an Morrison, avatar for him. Yeah, I think Morrison has such a specific understanding of the DC universe mm-hmm. that certain characters have to be in certain places or not available at all in order for certain things to happen. Right. Otherwise, they just can't happen. Otherwise, like yeah, I think like if, for example, if someone had not taken care of Lois Lane and then Superman had not been pulled into the multiverse in Final Crisis, I think in Morrison's mind, Final Crisis wouldn't have happened. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like I, 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 I think that stage yes, of things. Because yeah. Superman would have done something earlier to have stopped it. Right. Um, and it's it's really interesting. It shows a, an an incredible faith in the characters mm-hmm. that I think mm-hmm. a lot of writers don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because a lot of writers instead do things like well, Superman 2 is being dragged down into this mire. Whereas for Morrison, like, he can't... That does not compute for him. Right. He's like, no. That's, no, something else has to happen to Superman to take him out of that. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's interesting as well that Mary Marvel gets corrupted mm-hmm. in Final Crisis. Um, but Captain Marvel doesn't. See, I thought you were going to say it's interesting that Wonder Woman gets corrupted, but neither well, Superman I... nor Batman. Well, I think it's fascinating that Wonder Woman and Mayor Marvel both get corrupted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, other characters do as well, but mm-hmm. they don't, like, not all of them. Mm-hmm. But it fascinates me that he takes the, those two characters and not they don't just get corrupted, they become central characters for Darkseid. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because Green Arrow becomes a, a purifier, mm-hmm. but he's just a foot soldier. Mm-hmm. Like, Wonder Woman leads... The female Furies. Right. Mary Marvel becomes like what is I, I can't remember. Is Mary Marvel it's implied but not said outright. Does Mary Marvel become Granny Goodness? 
you know, I think Mary Marvel was Desaad. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, Mary Marvel's Desaad. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember that she was like a name character, but it's one of those things that only works if you only read Fighter Crisis because somewhere else, I think in Countdown or something, that's like patently contradicted. But uh, <laughs> but no, it, it's but like that sort of thing is really interesting. Like, why? Right. Is it just the is it just the fact that Darkseid that the female Furies is such a major component of Darkseid's forces in Kirby's fourth does, world, or is does it does it speak to some sexism on Morrison's part? Right. Exactly. That it's easier, quote unquote, for women to be corrupted. Right. Right. Or is it you know, or you know, because he's talking about the the meta game of these things that you know he's saying that these. He's not sexist. That the female characters in the DC universe are weaker characters, I guess. You know what I mean? Like when when all these characters are being used as their iconic, you know, the meta text. If the if the meta text about Final Crisis, which has something to do about the idea of of, of purifying a, a, the DC universe, um, mm. I know. I, it, I you've read. Uh, all of Return of Bruce Wayne, there, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. All, all six issues or whatever. Hi, have you, do you? Is it just me, or do you think the Wonder Woman's treatment, in especially the last issue, is almost an apology for the way she's doing Final Crisis? <laughs> you know, I, I, we did spend some time talking about how Wonder Woman's treatment in Return of Bruce Wayne. We didn't mention it specifically as an apology. It did seem like a very it, it kind of felt like Morrison finally got a sense of like, oh, here's how I can handle this character. Like, here, here's how this character, like, this character may be kind of the missing piece for what I, I need, you know? Um, because I don't think that he had previously all of his um, mediators between the text and the meta text are these sort of bubble characters that are outside, like the the monitors in Final Crisis or the um, the yellow aliens in Animal Man, and Return of Bruce Wayne sort of I think might be the first time that you have a character so central to the DC universe that kind of can understand the challenges and how to navigate that you know meta text slash text you know she since she's a since she is in communication with the gods, she has a, a sense of, of what it means to um, uh, what happens when you mess with myth, I guess. You know? yeah. it, it would be great if it was an apology. I, I, I sort of feel that um, it may have just been like a piece that clicked together for him in the course of putting this together, though. Because really, the Final Crisis stuff seemed very... Um, kind of messy and it sort of felt like Morrison in his interviews was very much like well you know that character I've got to figure out a way to redo her but she's you know he's like I don't like what she stands for I feel like she was really kind of flawed in the way that she was put together um, and yeah don't bother me kid was basically the, <laughs> a little bit of the subtext of the of the a lot of the rap you know the post game talk you know interviews that he was giving for each issue of Final Crisis, I thought. So, I don't know, maybe there's some point in, during the course of things where he specifically addresses Wonder Woman that way. Um, I think I think maybe in the back of his mind, because he said, like, I, I do want to figure out how to use this character properly, maybe that helped things fall into place with Return of Bruce Wayne. But it felt a little more organic, I guess. I don't know. Like, it was just kind of like a, a one of those little, oh, right, of course moments, you know, rather than a, well, and here's how I'm going to, you know, manufacture, you know, sort of my quasi-redemption of this character. You know? It's personally. just... Yeah, I don't know. I just... I hadn't even really put together the the weird gender politics fighter crisis until we started talking about it and now it's kind of like now it's kind of bothering me you know like well it should be huh, i mean it's it's, it's very marvel and wonder woman yeah yeah i mean it's i mean for that matter we do have a thing because it, it's kind of interesting you have talked about your uh 
distress, I guess, about, say, for example, Alan Moore's treatment of female characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, part of me is like, well, I wonder, does, does, does Morrison really have that much better of a track record? You know? Morrison, I, I want to say he has a better track record, but I think Morrison, uh, I don't want to say that he can't write women, but I think he can only write a very specific woman or very specific woman. Um, mm-hmm. Because you've got Ragged Robin, who's the same character as Jean Grey, mm-hmm. who's the same character as Crazy Jane when she gets, uh, when all of her, her uh, personalities start working together. Right. Um, and they're the, they're the same character. Um He's got, like, a pragmatic woman. He's mm-hmm. got a bitchy woman. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. Right. I mean, he's got a pragmatic woman, he's got a bitchy woman, and he's got the woman who gets written out of the story. You know? I it's mean, funny. I was, I was rereading um, Anarchy for the Masses, which is, the, the um, like, a, a collection of uh, annotations, essentially, for the Invisibles. Yes. Um, and it's got an interview with Morrison in the back. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty much taken to task for Boy pretty much just being written in the series by the end of Volume 2. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, that's what she did. You know, that that's that's what the character did. Uh, <laughs> and and it's like, but it's it's kind of fascinating because she gets written out and Helga gets written in. Mm-hmm. And Helga is so much more of a, a, um, a fantasy figure. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like she's an incredibly smart super scientist who's also like a former model, and hey, she's all pervy as well. And it's right. like, okay, I'm really glad that we lost Boy and pretty much Robin by that point from the series as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order for this, like, cipher to come in, right? Well, and, and which is my thing is is to me, there's an element of the Invisibles that. I'm willing to forgive for Morrison because he's very candid about how the the nature of it of sigil is that he's he's basically turning it into you know fan fiction self insertion fan fiction as a magical spell yes right? or or vice versa depending mm-hmm. on how you want to look at it and so the things that I can occasionally find exasperating. At least I feel that there's a certain bizarro candor to him going, well, yeah, I had this whole conception of things, and then I basically had to blow it up because I felt it was poisoning me, and I had to recreate myself in my life as something that um, uh, was was where I wanted to be. Yes. And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, sort of in a way as... Um, you know, as 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 a very hyper artistic version of the dog ate my um, homework. I mean, it's a it's a kind of it's a brilliant. It's to me, it's an excuse that transcends an ex, an excuse. It's kind of like, okay, I can believe this. And frankly, there is something to be said for the idea of starting a huge five year series and letting it grow organically and putting it in a different place, um, especially in a book like The Invisibles that is about kind of the nature of transformation in the first place. Like, yeah. I think that's yeah, no. very valid. Um, but I do, like, I kind of did have that moment of like, okay, but then after that, where, kind of like, where do you go? Like, where is, like, Morrison's treatment of, of women is kind of underdeveloped, I guess, is is a generous way of... of putting it I think and kind of strange because he is obviously somebody who's very a very uh, inclusive writer who thinks Mm -hmm. very inclusively Um, and I sort of feel like I kind of I kind of thought that I had read somewhere that that Morrison had pretty much admitted that part of the reason why he wrote out boy was he was just tired of being criticized for yeah, no, he, he touches on that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Not necessarily that's why he did it, but that he was getting a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his defense was pretty much, I tried to do something different. I can't just... He was like, if I only write people like me, you're going to get Adventures of Bald Media Type from Scotland. And who wants to read that? Which I think I think is, like, a good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it really... I don't think it really works as a defense about Boy and the Invisibles, because... She's almost entirely made up by cliches, especially when you get her backstory and like her brother is this well-known rapper called Easy D. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like I remember even at that point where I'm, what age would I be? I would have been like twenty, twenty-three, something like that. Right. Um, 
in Scotland, I remember being like, really? <laughs> really? Is that where you're going with that? Honestly? Um, and it just lazy. I remember thinking, oh, God, this is horrible. Um, but I don't know. I, I can kind of see his point and kind of not see his point when it comes to that, when it comes to the, the I was being criticized. And so I thought it was better to get rid of the character because I don't know. There, there's so... There's so much else in the series that isn't necessarily within his viewpoint either that well, I, think, yeah. I think he's less lazy about. Something that is interesting and I completely forgotten when reading Anarchy of the Masses is the part where he says that by the final volume, he had given up his King Mob as being his avatar. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he had moved on to Mr. Six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense if you think about what happens to Mr. Six in the final volume. But right. it's also like, huh. So that's, you know, maybe that allowed him to give King Mob more of a shitty time in the final volume. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, that 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 would make sense. Although I don't I don't know. I think he uh Yeah, there's 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 a certain there's a certain amount of moving things around. I also wanted to talk to you cuz maybe this would be fresher for you than for me. Um uh Abbe's I thought really really brilliant post over over on the Savage Critics or right here on the Savage Critics depending on where you're listening this, to this. Um is about Batman and and comparing it to the Invisibles, I thought it was a really very fun, very clever little essay. But it also started me thinking: there's there's pretty much there's very clearly and distinctly a Bruce Wayne analog in the Invisibles, isn't there? Yeah, Mason. Yeah, right. So I kind of had that thing of like, you know, it'd be really fun to say that the whole idea behind you know Batman R.I.P. is to get Bruce Wayne to the point where he could become his avatar in the Invisibles. Um, but I mean, it's know. worth remembering that the Invisibles and JLA, which ran at the same time, at one point had a crossover. Yes, which I had totally forgotten about until Adam Nave pointed it out to me in New York. The whole Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, which, thing, which right? yeah, which is the um, the Hand of Glory. Is that what it's called in the Invisibles? I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, no, but like it's a really direct crossover to the point where there's an explosion. I think that's caused in the Invisibles that happens in JLA. Right. <laughs> which. I was reading both books at the time and totally missed. I'm really curious about how it totally flew over my head, which is. Well, really I, I, th- I think it kind of makes sense mm-hmm. that if, do you know what I mean? Because it's not like because you wouldn't expect those two books to cross over, right? And you don't go into reading JLA thinking, "I wonder if he's mirroring the themes." <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it, it makes sense that you wouldn't necessarily pick it up because also it's an explosion. Those things mm-hmm. happen a lot in comics. Like, if it was a really, if it was an unusual thing, right? then that would make more sense. But it wasn't. It was an explosion. Well, but there's also, I think, as Nave pointed out, like, the Philosopher's Stone slash Hand of Glory disappears from one narrative when it's needed and pops up in the other, and then vice versa. Yes. So The two, the two stories focusing on those objects happens at exactly the same time. Right. Which is, um, which again... A really, really incredibly witty uh, and fun. And I guess it's the miracle of, I don't know, uh, the fact that I wasn't on Usenet back then when the stories were coming out that I had, that I completely missed it. it but it's also, I mean, something I think Morrison's been very open about is at that point, mm-hmm. everything he was doing was automatic writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he was, he was so far behind deadlines on everything right? that, that, it's not even as if it was planned as much as these things were bleeding into each other because these things were bleeding into each other in his head. He could not straighten his head, which he was writing necessarily. Right. Which is great. I mean, that's kind of, um, that's, that's a, that's really, there's a lot to be said for that place. Cause of course, you know, for, for those of us who, who worship at the, the, um, the Jack Kirby altar, crackly altar, uh, you know, there is that idea of like, at some point he became, had to be, producing so much so quickly that it's like this, you know, sort of master creator moving out into the realms of the unconscious and having all of his skills to kind of rein it in. But how conscious Kirby was or how much of what was in the characters he was actually able to put onto the page is part of what leaves it so, like, startling, you know? And and Morrison, it's interesting to me that Morrison was able to do that for me, in some cases, more satisfyingly when he wasn't trying to do it consciously, I suppose. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's... it's. I don't know. I think there's a, there's a lot of, of um, 
there's a lot more to be done and delved into, I think, in the weird subconscious crossing over between everything Morrison was writing at that point. Right. Um, than I had some. What rereading Anacreth the Masses, which I think it's weird that I reread that and not The Invisibles itself, but um, what rereading it really made me feel, though, is there's nothing like The Invisibles anymore. Mm hmm. Well, I, I don't know. Uh... Is there, what am I missing? I was thinking, what what is there out there that's such an intricately built long form narrative that engages in the mainstream, not only of comics, but also the mainstream popular culture and rewards constant rereading? Uh, well, I have to. The I have only to thing, the know. only thing I could think of, like recently, is Ex mm. Machina, which is just finished. Mm, I don't know, man. Really? Do you think that 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 holds? No, up I, on no, I, 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 no. Well, that's just it. Like, I'm not entirely sure it does, but that's the only thing I could think of that came close. Well, okay. I think that. I mean, the thing that's crazy is there's a lot of stuff that I'm not reading and I'm not following. So I don't know. It could very well be that there is... I mean, there, there may, yeah, there may be something yeah. else. Um, you know, I think somebody more educated than me might suggest, and this is going to sound weird, but I know... I only know this because... Um, and I think hopefully you saw the... Did you see the issue of, um, of Onomatopoeia where Hibbs... Um, Print, reprinted uh, an email from Garth Ennis talking about the influences on the boys, where basically someone had asked Hibbs, some a customer at the store had no, asked Hibbs an, uh, in Onomatopoeia. Yeah, in Onomatopoeia, it was on the inside front cover. Um, it was a couple of years back. Uh, you know, it, it's what, on your run. Um, where a... like I look at my run, I was yeah, well, no, up... dude. Tell me, I know. <laughs> I was writing everything up. Like I ever cracked those open. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> you're like, I know what's inside. The vast majority of it is me, and my only real things are to look at what you know choices Hibbs actually put on to go. You know, you're the, the same articles. man, exactly. Which what art does he pull? <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, so that's why I figured you might not have, have no, seen this, see but it's a beautiful little thing where apparently somebody asked. Hibbs about the influences uh, and Hibbs basically asked Ennis and Ennis wrote back a great little you know three or four paragraph thing about his it was the influences I think on the boys and also the stuff the the stuff that he likes to read and one of the things that I, I found fascinating was that the boys had come from Ennis uh, out of reading uh, James Elroy's uh I don't know what the, the what the name of the trilogy is, but it's the one that just sort of recently completed with Bloods Rover, where Elroy uh, takes uh, fictionalizes the the underworld history of the United States from like nineteen fifty ish all the way up to I don't know maybe the eighties or nineties. I haven't I haven't paid attention. So the stuff that's covered in um, Bloods of Rover and the the Brave. God, I'm I'm gonna get all the names wrong because I'm old. Uh, let me see here, Elroy. Um, do, 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 do. I just want to see his books. Let's see if I can figure this out because I, you know, had read the L.A. Quartet. Yeah, the Underworld USA trilogy, um, which is the the Cold Six Thousand, Bloods of Rover, and and American Tabloid. Uh, I've listed those completely out of order. But so it, it the fictionalized secret history of the of the late twentieth century of the United States, Ennis had mentioned that the boys is kind of his attempt to do kind of the superhero equivalent of the same kind mm -hmm. of, and so they, although I don't follow the boys at all, I would be I would suspect that as it goes on and has been going on for quite some time, underneath all the um, you know scatological jokes and you know, doubtless, you know, homophobic, uh, humor, uh, there's probably a really strong undercurrent of criticism probably about American culture and, or about the American comic book industry. It, it, there, it there's, yeah. Me. Do, do you read the boys? No, no. I read like the first arc and it just struck me as kind of not, maybe, maybe it has gotten better sense, but it struck me as a, um, a big criticism of superheroes by somebody who doesn't really 
read superheroes and yeah i I, th- I think that's really fair but um there is there is a a character who is essentially like a kirby analog i guess mm-hmm. um who like sends them on missions and gives them information and everything and i think like that is where a lot of the comic the meta comic criticism comes from mm-hmm. um and to my mind it's it's actually relatively clumsy mm-hmm. uh and in a lot of senses betrays his prejudice right like i think if you i think if you start from the point of superheroes are ridiculous mm-hmm then everything seems much more ridiculous. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, if, or, or superheroes are beneath me, or superheroes are kids' stuff, or whatever. Right. Um, and I think a lot of the voice actually reflects that. I think so, too. I mean, the, the parts that I actually thought were, worked the best was not necessarily in a way that I was going to enjoy either, but I actually thought what kind of worked was the sort of push and pull of, you know, here's Ennis. Ennis does not like superheroes. And frankly, this is just my own opinion. Ennis does not particularly like sex, or at least he always finds the stuff. He finds, he he seems to mainly find the humor in it in a way that makes me suspect that he doesn't like it. Here's Derek Robertson Derek Robertson loves superheroes and Derek Robertson loves sex, you know? And so I thought that the first batch of issues had like a very kind of weird, like it was like sweet and sour chicken, but I also kind of felt very sick after reading more than an issue two of it. Just, just, just kind of like, blah, like it's not for me. So I kind of felt that without Robertson on there, I, I, I think it really wouldn't have been at all interesting for me. As, as far as I made it into the run. And frankly, that was not very far. Um, so the answer is it may be a book that we don't follow, but I do get the sense that, you know, it, it, again, that Elroy, uh, that Ennis is trying something that, uh, you know, where the weakest part, the superhero stuff, belies the fact that he's actually trying to, to mesh with a bunch of different things in a kind of long-form way, you know? I, I think... Ennis has always been a really problematic writer for me because I really find it hard to get past the machismo. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, which I find incredibly off-putting about his work. Right. Uh, I know, and I know that's a, a a lot of what a lot of people find really attractive about his mm-hmm. work. But I I find it, and I'm not necessarily talking about like the homophobia or or any of that. Although, holy crap, that's definitely there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, more the sense of like you know, a man's got to have honor, or like the, the whole like preacher in general, <laughs> right? Um, like I can recognize the talent, but I just I can't enjoy it. Hmm. Uh, and if I, I find the boys is filled with that sort of stuff, but also with a lot of, I think superheroes are ridiculous, and I'm going to make them look even more ridiculous, right? And so I just like, and the thing is, like I get comps from Dynamite. Mm-hmm. So I I read a lot of the boys. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, right, sure. Ge- generally, that. generally I wait until like storylines finish and then I sit there and read it. And what I find the the only the thing that find, keeps me really interested is the relationships between the core characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel that Ennis is such a pessimist mm-hmm. that he won't allow people a happy ending until literally the ending. And even then it's like a bittersweet, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to (laughs) do. Bullshit. No, I know if that just happens to end with like, Mm -hmm. and then he gets the girl, then that's fine. Right. But there'll have to be like some price. And at some point, like a man's going to have to betray his best friend for honor and shit like that. And it's just, I don't know. I find it really forced. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I don't find it forced. I do feel that, like, I was one of the few people, at least at the time, because, of course, Hibs loved this stuff, where it's like, I started, I guess I started reading Preacher around issue 25 or so, which was relatively early on, and I remember devouring those first three trade paperbacks all in a row, and I was like, this is really amazing stuff. And what I found fascinating was, as the arc of Preacher goes on, uh it almost becomes more personal and less interesting to me. Uh, I really felt that Preacher biffed the ending. 
I, I Preacher was one of those books that I remember like, wow, this did not land the ending at all. And, you know, Hibbs, it seemed a lot of other people at the store also felt kind of the opposite. Like, oh, no, no, this was always where it was going. And I'm like, I don't think so. And I don't think it, if that was the case, I think it would have been developed better. You know, I, I just remember thinking that um, the book, the confrontation between between Jesse and Cassidy was something that once it once it became where it was going, um, I was impressed at kind of how it didn't end up there in any sort of, for me, what felt like a really vibrant way. Uh, and, and I don't know, Ennis is like, I'm okay with his misanthropy. I'm a little more uncomfortable when it moves into, uh, like I said, the the parts that are there, there's something there's something about Ennis that that only strikes me as a little bit of the bully, I guess. And um, there are times where it fits really well with his work, I think, um, when he's sometimes when he's writing bully characters. But there's also times where I find that it it mm, where his ability, where his, his, because it's kind of the same thing, time in and time out, it's kind of like, there's times when he hits it really well in a way that I think's lovely, and then he's going to not land. Like, some of his war story one-shots, I think, are, are fucking amazing. I thought some of the stuff in The Punisher, once it began getting dark-er and really dark, I, I enjoyed tremendously. Um, but then I've always liked those kinds of, I like hard-boiled crime fiction, and once he moved closer to that in some of his other stuff, like, some of it's brilliant. Um, and his humor, which apparently, you know, which drew a lot of people, I find really kind of comes and goes. Like, I realize that I think I appreciate Steve Dillon's sense of humor more than Garth Ennis's sense of humor. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, at that point, part of what makes Ennis work uh, is who he's working with. So in that regard, I thought, you know, when he's doing humorous stuff with Steve Dillon in Preacher or Punisher, it's kind of fantastic. When it's in other places, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of puerile and a little mean, sort of, I guess, in a way that I, I'm I, I think really down with. Annis is one of those people who, I'm not sure is, yes, is mean, but I'm not sure I call him a bully as much as someone who just doesn't know when to stop. Mm-hmm. Like he's an incredibly overbearing presence. And oh, yeah, that's someone, not a bully and it, at all. <laughs> no, but, no, but in the sense of, like, I don't think it's necessarily malicious mm-hmm. as much as he's one of those people who doesn't know where the joke ends mm-hmm. and will just keep going. And then if someone responds negatively to it, will respond with a, oh, they can't take a joke, as opposed to maybe I've gone too far. We must have very different definitions of bully in our dictionaries. You know what I mean? (laughs) I know know, know what you're saying. I feel bully somehow has more to it than that. Like, bully is aggressively going out there to belittle someone not for humor, but for the sake of belittling them. Mm. I, 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 I feel that... I feel that that's one definition. I feel like most bullies actually think of themselves as just remarkably fun guys who find themselves in situations where people can't take a joke or people, you know, or guys who like are kind of trying to just, you know, say what they honestly feel and be candid with people. And for some reason, you know, people are always crapping on them. And don't get me wrong. This is the thing that's actually, you know, where I feel like I'm really digging my own grave super rapidly here. Because I agree. I think saying that 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 Ennis is like an actual bully bully who's going to go out there and like push people down in the halls. I don't think that that's, you know, he's not the, you know, ADD riddled. I have also all sorts of crazy issues going on with me because, you know, my my dad hits my mom kind of bully that you encounter in the 10th grade. I'm thinking of more like as people grow up, it's kind of interesting how they where their their level of empathy sort of rises or ends. And I think Ennis actually is at his most gorgeous when he can be empathetic and tender but he usually has to you know he's so mm, off-putting on his way getting there like I actually thought Cross turned out to be a great series and I remember after the first two issues 
everybody just seemed to hate it. And I was kind of like, no, I think he's actually going to end up somewhere interesting precisely because he got rid of the fanboy character in the very first issue. And that means, like, wherever he's going, it's not going to have anything to do with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, I, I think I just keep interrupting you to defend my, my own weirdo interpretations of words. But So what you're saying is uh, Garth Ennis is a terrible bully and he picked a new school, right? You know, the worst part is Garth Ennis has bought me a beer and has been incredibly charming and nice to me every time that I've seen him. So I'm really, I'm really a dick is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's my takeaway, Graham. I'm an ass. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, because we are at the hour point, that's where we end this. Oh, no! <laughs> you are the worst human being alive, Graham McMillan. Oh, I come on. Say that. That's pretty good. <laughs> okay, so give me a few minutes. I'll call you back, and then in theory we can talk comics? I don't know. Like actual comics comics? or? Oh, hey, I've already talked about Steel Issue 1 and Hulk. Oh, shit. Uh, (laughs) exactly (laughs) alright well I guess hmm, uh, I will have to talk about comic books that hopefully maybe you didn't read and uh, then I can explain them to to you in a way that actually makes them sound interesting because I have to admit I would be interested in picking I'm not going to pick up Steel I will tell you that uh, I I wouldn't tell you to pick up Steel however you really 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 should pick up Hulk I should you know I do have to say that the whole I think part of my problem is the Hulk family concept. Like, I know that Parker's playing out a hand that was dealt to him, not just by Loeb, but sort of the way the whole Hulkiverse has grown or franchised. And I'm really kind of uncomfortable with it. You know what I mean? So, but I maybe that's something that we can talk about when we come back. Yes. Boom, boom, boom. Let, let's come back. That's a cliffhanger. I feel, we should, I feel like we should make a real cliffhanger by you, like, asking a question that we then answer. <laughs> uh, okay, do you have one of those questions? Is that something that we should do? I, I don't. I was As soon as I said that, I was like, I should try and come up with one of those questions quickly, and I don't. Yeah. yeah Jeff, come to... on. Don't let us down here. <laughs> Wait, I have to come up with a question that I then have to answer? Yes. Oh, I think I came up... Oh, shit. I'm not going to remember it. Damn it. I had a really good one where it was like... I know. I should ask people. Yeah. Nope. It's gone. Sorry. <laughs>